2,000 years ago, on a warm and dusty day in Roman Britain, where could you find a drink? Roman tavern keepers hung vine leaves outside their shop as a sign that they sold wine. But there were no vines in Britain's cool climate. Here they used local bushes, such as holly leaves. So Britain's very first pub name was probably the Hollybush. In medieval England, innkeepers would place an object outside for people to recognise their premises. Giving us familiar pub names, such as the horseshoe, the plough or crooked billet. A billet was a big old stick that had fallen from a tree. Most people were illiterate, so these symbols were more important than written names. In 1393, King Richard II passed an act making it compulsory for... Whosoever shall brew ale in the town with the intention of selling it must hang out a sign, otherwise he shall forfeit his ale. Some landlords adopted King Richard's badge, the White Heart. Medieval pubs often had religious names, such as the Mitre or the Crossed Keys, the emblem of St Peter. But when Henry VIII left the Church of Rome, Catholic symbols were replaced by Tudor names and signs, such as the King's Head, the Rose or Red Dragon. Over time, thousands of pubs took the names of queens, kings, princes and nobles. The Marquis of Granby was a soldier aristocrat. When his officers left the army, he would set them up with a living as a tavern keeper. They showed their gratitude by naming the pub after him. Today, there are 24 Granby pubs from Sussex to Tyneside. After the Duke of Wellington's victory at Waterloo, more than 100 boozers adopted his name. Horatio Nelson has 80 pubs dedicated to the naval hero. Rather fitting, as his body was preserved in alcohol after his death at the Battle of Trafalgar. William Shakespeare is the writer most celebrated in pub titles, with 33. But the person with most pubs named for her is Queen Victoria. Not surprising, as she ruled for 64 years during a building boom. Queen Vic even gets a fictional pub name check in the BBC soap EastEnders. But the most popular name originates from the time of James I, who brought his Scottish symbol to England in 1603. Allegedly demanding his heraldic red lion be displayed on all buildings of importance. Today, 515 pubs bear the name Red Lion. A lot of tippling houses took their name from hunting sports. The Greyhound, the Fox and Hounds, the Hare and Hounds. The Bird in Hand is said to come from Henry VIII's love and passion for falconry. The Cock from times where cockfighting was popular workers' entertainment. During the 18th century, coaching inns proliferated as places where travellers could get a meal and a bed. Giving birth to pub names such as Coach and Horses and Horse and Groom. There's a story that in the Midlands town of Stony Stratford, the London-bound coach changed horses at the Bull and the Birmingham coach at the Cock Inn across the road. The passengers would exchange news, exaggerating so much that these travellers' tales became known as cock and bull stories. Sadly, this explanation for the idiom is most likely a cock and bull story. As coach travel declined, canals and railways took over. Giving us navigation inns, station inns and railway taverns. The penchant for punning names is older than many think. A broadside 
in The Spectator magazine in 1710, bemoaned the fashion for foolish pub names, such as the Blue Boar, Flying Pig or the Fawcett Inn. These titles still annoy traditionalists who hate it when their local pub is renamed with titles such as Frog and Radiator, The Muppet Inn, The Moody Cow or The Kebab and Calculator. The Barmy Arms in Twickenham seems like one of these modern rebrandings. But Barmy is actually derived from the Middle English word berm, meaning the foam on fermenting beer. Over time, Barmy changed to give us the modern definition, crazy. Maybe derived from frothing mad. The Office is another modern pub title. Allegedly named, so if you get a phone call asking where you are, you can respond... I'm in the office. But perhaps the best punning name is found in Diddicum Lee in Devon. The Nobody Inn. Samuel Whitbread was Britain's grand beer baron. Starting out as an apprentice, eight years later, he founded his own brewery in East London. By the time King George III visited his Hind Brewery in the 1780s, it was the largest in the world. Samuel used his fortune to gain influence, taking a seat in Parliament arranging for the Speaker of the House of Commons coach to be housed at his brewery for over a century and pulled by Whitbread's Shire horses. On his death, the Gentleman's magazine speculated that the brewer was worth more than a million pounds. Over a billion in today's money. The Whitbread story was repeated across the country. Arthur Guinness learned his brewing skills as a pub owner his Dublin porter becoming the most famous stout in the world. Four members of his family became MPs for South End, leading to the town being nicknamed Guinness-on-Sea. William Bass and William Worthington helped turn Burton-upon-Trent into the beer capital of Britain. By the 1880s, there were 30 Burton breweries, producing a quarter of Britain's beer. To control the market, these big beer companies bought up pubs who were only allowed to sell drinks made by the brewery. In 1931, Parliament decided to challenge the big beer monopoly. Mr Stranger! Evidence given before the Royal Licensing Commission showed that among the owners of four London brewing companies, there were 46 peers, 20 peeresses, 161 lords and ladies and honourables, 47 baronets, 106 knights and 17 members of Parliament. Lady Astor! You might as well call it the beerage as the peerage. Order! Order! I would remind the noble lady that it is the rule of this house not to say anything disrespectful of the other place. The beer peers had gone from brewers to rulers. All the planets are beneath us, all the planets shake That's the way the money goes, pop goes the weasel. Up and down the sea, in an empty eagle. 
1856, a letter to the London Morning Post complained. For many months, everybody has been bored to death with the eternal grinding of this ditty on the streets. But what seems like an innocent nursery rhyme is actually a story of poverty and alcohol. Working-class Victorians would buy tuppenny rice and sweeten it with gooey treacle syrup. To make a rice pudding, one writer called... The cheapest and nastiest food available to London's poor. The Eagle is a pub that still stands in Islington. Once you had spent your money in the boozer, you'd head down to the City Road pawn shop and pop your weasel and stoat. Cockney rhyming slang for coat. So pop goes the weasel meant a poor Londoner had pawned their coat. Victorian labourers' lives revolved around pubs like the Eagle. Henry Mayhew recorded their stories in The London Labour and The London Poor. Visiting the docks to interview coal whippers, the men who unloaded the coal transports. The coal whippers were employed and paid by the publicans in the neighbourhood of the river, from Tower Hill to Limehouse. Under this system, the most dissolute and intemperate obtained employment. The publicans were the relatives of the northern shipowners. They mostly had come to London penniless, and being placed in a tavern by their relatives often became shipowners themselves. There were 70 taverns on the north side of the Thames employing coal whippers, all of the landlords making fortunes out of the earnings of these people. When a ship came in, the men assembled round the bar in crowds and began calling for drink, outbidding each other in their orders to induce the landlord to give them employment. After being taken on, their first care was to put up a score at the public house to please their employer, the publican. In the morning, before going to their work, they would invariably call at the house for a drink and were obliged to buy a bottle, holding nine pots of beer of the worst description. It was the invariable practice among the publicans to supply the coal whippers with the very worst articles at the highest prices. When the men returned from their work, they went back to the public house and there remained drinking the greater part of the night. When asked if they had things to pawn, the men laughed and one told me, All of us, a pawns a coat on Monday and takes it back to wear on a Saturday night paying a month's interest. The public house takes everything. We struggle to keep our families for lack of money and our children are neglected. A lot of them falls into bad ways and is transported, so we never sees them again. One informant who carried coal told me, I'm a coal backer, and I have been for these 22 years. We carry the coals in sacks, and our load weighs as much as two men. We ask to take the load from the hold of the ship, 20 feet deep, up a ladder, and over four barges into the wagon. Each man will do this 90 times a day. That is three times the height of St. Paul's Cathedral in 12 hours. The labor is very hard. There's few men who can continue at it. I've been obliged to give it up eight months back. I overstrained myself and have had to lay up for many months. I'm 45 years of age and I have eight children. 
We as slaves to the alehouses. A good man might make a pound a week, but a keeping place has to spend twelve shilling weekly in beer and spirits to stimulate them for work. Some spends up to fifteen shillings. What they takes home actually being only five shillings a week. Many of the backers are paid at the public house. The Warfinger gives them a note to receive their daily earnings off the publican, who has the money from the merchant. Often, the backers are kept waiting an hour at the public house for their money, and they have credit for drink. While waiting, they have two or three pots of beer before they are paid. Many return home drunk, with only half their earnings in their pockets. There is scarcely a man among the backers but hardly wishes the system of payment at the public house may be entirely abolished. That's the way the money goes, pop goes the weasel. Two shilling worth of barley gives you two shillings worth of food, but two shillings worth of ale gives you one penny worth of food. Ale is simply flavoured juice. Even if beer had useful properties, if it were as nutritious as milk or as nourishing as bread, if we consider its awful consequences in society at large, we should never allow it to come within our doors. Joseph Livesey finished his sermons with a party trick. Setting fire to the alcohol distilled from a quart of ale, to the shock and amazement of his audience. Livesey's Preston's Temperance Society was part of the 19th century abstinence movement. Supported by Methodists, non-conformist chapels and the Sunday school movement. With its roots in northern Britain, where firebrand teetotalers were known as the Lancashire fanatics. The most influential was the Band of Hope Union. 300 children attended their inaugural rally in Leeds, each ready to sign the pledge. I, the undersigned, do agree that I will not use intoxicating liquors as a beverage. By 1897, they had more than three million members and Queen Victoria as their patron. To keep men out of the pubs, campaigners arranged football matches on Saturday afternoons. Aston Villa Football Club was founded by crusading anti-drink Methodists. Teetotaler Thomas Cook started his travel business by taking a group of campaigners from Leicester to a rally in Loughborough. And many Salvation Army converts were former alcoholics. One of their 11 articles of war is a commitment to refuse all that could enslave the body or spirit. Driven by a tide of reforming zeal, there were acts of temperance terrorism. In the West Country, cider apple orchards were grubbed up. One wealthy convert bought the hole-in-the-wall public house and raised it to the ground to build a temperance hall. The hall's floor built from the wood of broken beer vats. In 1836, the first temperance hotel opened. Thirty years later, there were 200 across the UK. Blood and thunder preachers of abstinence condemned the devastating effects of drinking on working people. One northern newspaper reported... On Tuesday afternoon, the attention of a constable was drawn to a drunken man and woman in Johnston Street. 
The woman had a child in her arms. It was taken from her and found to be in a shockingly diseased and neglected state. The constable visited the house of the inebriate family. In the top room, the woman's father was lying on bare boards with only an old rug for clothes and cover. In another part of the house was an aunt very much worse for drink, surrounded by her three young children. There was not a particle of food in the whole place. The father and mother were brought to court and it was ordered that the children should be removed to the workhouse. In 1870, alcohol-related deaths numbered 60,000 a year. But Charles Dickens pointed out that drink was the consequence, not the cause. Drunkardness as a national horror is the effect of many causes. Foul smells, disgusting habitations, bad workshops, want of light, air and water, the absence of all means and decency and health are commonest among its everyday physical causes. Mental weariness and languor so induced, the want of wholesome relaxation, the craving for some stimulus and excitement, which is as much a part of such lives as the sun is. Wassail, wassail, all over the town Our toasted is white and our ale it is brown Our bowl is made of the white maple tree With a wassailing bowl we'll drink to thee We've all seen the signs saying The oldest alehouse in Britain There are dozens of pubs making this claim But what is the truth behind this impossible equation? Ye olde trip to Jerusalem in Nottingham has a medieval-sounding name. According to the pub website, it was... Built in 1189. We were christened when King Richard the Lionheart and his men congregated here before embarking on the Crusades. We are England's oldest surviving inn. Just ask our resident ghosts. Well, we asked the pub ghosts and they just said... The trip sits below the rocky mound of Nottingham Castle. But was the trip a working alehouse back in 1189? Probably not. The first reference to the building being a pub comes from the 1750s. But Nottingham has another ye olde contender. Ye olde salutation in. OK, side note here. Don't be fooled by ye olde. It is pretend Old English used to make a pub sound like it dates from medieval times. The Y is an Old English letter called Thorn, but it's actually pronounced TH. So the Old Salutation Inn stands on caves dating back to the 9th century. But the pub's timber frames date from the 1240s, the year it supposedly opened as an alehouse named The Archangel Gabriel Salutes the Virgin Mary. But if it's not the oldest pub in Britain, it is the most haunted. With 89 resident apparitions. Like buses, ancient pubs come in threes in Nottingham. According to its website... The Bell Inn is one of the most famous and historic pubs in Nottingham, dating back to 1437, boasting connections to Oliver Cromwell. 
But the exterior of the belly is definitely not medieval. And there is no ye olde in its name to make it sound proper ancient. The pub's oldest wood beams date back to the 1440s. And there are documents showing it was a hostelry in 1638. And the Channel 4 TV series History Hunters named the Bell Inn as the earliest Nottingham pub. But disappointingly, it has no ghosts. The Royal Standard of England in Beaconsfield has a three-page essay on its website boasting its history. Claiming it was listed in the Doomsday Book when it was known as the ship. There is documentary evidence of the ship from 1213. And the ship does have a ghost. A 12-year-old Irish drummer boy from the Civil War. There are stories that King Charles I hid in a hole in the roof when he was escaping the Roundheads. And that the ship played host to his son, Charles II, who met his mistresses there. The king rewarded the pub for its loyalty, naming it Royal Standard of England. The old ferry boat inn at St Ives in Cambridgeshire claims it was here as far back as 560. It has a Shakespearean ghost story involving a lover called Juliet Chusley. The poor girl committed suicide after being jilted by her beloved. The pub was built on top of her grave and Juliet rises every year on the anniversary of her death. Probably somewhat thirsty after all these centuries. Fortunately, the pub serves spirits. There's a stone paving inside the building memorialising Juliet. But is the pub over a thousand years old? Well, unlikely. Its foundations date back to the 1400s. Then there's the Bingley Arms near Leeds, which says it was an alehouse in 953. Once known as the Priest's Inn, it has two hiding places used by Catholics during the 16th century. And it has three ghosts, including a phantom dog. When that appears, it must be terrifying. The old fighting cocks, or more correctly, the old fighting cocks in St Albans, says its foundations date back to 793 as part of the palace of the Mercian king Offa. The current building was constructed in the 11th century as a pigeon house. Oliver Cromwell is supposed to have spent the night there. Apparently the old Puritan likes a sherry and some small beer. But the first reference to it being an alehouse is in 1756. The George in Norton St Philip near Bath says... With a history dating back to 1397, the George is one of Britain's oldest taverns. A few years ago, the Guinness Book of World Records declared the George to be the oldest pub in Britain. But in the same decade, the now very old, but then new inn at Gloucester began business. As a galleried courtyard inn built by a monk from Gloucester Abbey. But medieval inns and taverns were not pubs. As we discussed in part one of our podcast. And the heated controversy involving the naming of the oldest pub in Britain means that the Guinness Book of Records has given up on the debate. On a Monday afternoon in 1814, George Crick, the storeman at London's Horseshoe Brewery, walked past the fermentation tank. I saw that one of the iron rings that holds the great tank together was bust. We call that cast the beast. 
you can get 3,500 barrels of beer in there, enough for every man in London to have a pint. The Muir and Co storehouse was jammed with rack upon rack of huge wooden vats of fermenting porter, including the 22-foot beast. Now, one of the iron hoops being broke wasn't nothing out of place. It has happened many times with no consequence. The thing is, when pressure builds up in there, it could be fit to bust. So I told the foreman and writes a note for the governor telling him we should have it repaired. Then the worst thing happens. A terrible smashing sound. Not ever had I heard a noise like that. Such that I will never forget. The giant grape barrel had burst. The force of the eruption smashing through a 25-foot wall and tearing down the roof of the brewery. Neighbouring tanks ruptured. In a matter of minutes, the brewery was engulfed with 320,000 gallons of dark brown beer. I ran to the storehouse and was up to my knees in beer. I remember in a terrible state, the wall and roof had come down on them. Sinking in that flood was my brother. One of the men pulls him from under the butt that had collapsed to one side. I waded over to him and tried to revive him, but he was gone. A torrent of beer flowed through the streets and down Tottenham Court Road. At the Tavistock Arms pub, Richard Hawes was in his taproom when he heard a crash. The back part of the pub was smashed in. Every corner of the cellar and taproom filled with beer. Eleanor, our barmaid, was in the yard washing pots. When I came out, she was buried under the ruins. We struggled for three hours and finally got her out. But poor Eleanor was quite dead. A 15-foot wave, million-pint tsunami, engulfed the streets and the nearby rookery at St Giles. A notorious slum of crowded tenements packed with the destitute, prostitutes and criminals. Without street drainage, the beer had nowhere to go except into cellars and basements, forcing the inhabitants to clamber onto furniture for safety. The body of Anne Saville was seen floating among the debris in the Horseshoe pub. In one of the houses, Mary Banfield and her daughter Hannah were taking tea when the flood hit. Both were killed. In the basement of another house, an Irish wake was being held for a two-year-old boy who had died the previous day. The four mourners drowned. The Times reported... All this free beer led to hundreds of people scooping up the liquid in whatever containers they could. Some resorted to just drinking it, leading to reports of the death of a victim some days later from alcoholic poisoning. The alcohol fumes overpowered several bystanders. By the time the flood subsided, the disaster had claimed eight victims. Some relatives exhibited corpses of the victims for money. In one house, the macabre show resulted in the collapse of the floor under the weight of visitors, plunging everyone waist-high into a beer-flooded cellar. The beer stench persisted for months. The company was taken to court, but the disaster was ruled to be an act of God, leaving no one responsible. 
The damage cost the brewery £23,000. That's £1.25 in modern money. They saved themselves from bankruptcy by recovering excise duty paid on the beer. There were so many incidents at the Horseshoe Brewery that people were convinced that the place was cursed. West Middlesex Advertiser and Family Journal, 17th of March 1860. Lamentable accident. A brewer's drayman in the employ of Muir and Company, Totten Court Road, was brought to Westminster Hospital on Sunday. The unfortunate John Caleb was riding on the dray with his legs hanging down, as is usual with draymen, when another vehicle came in contact and crushed the poor man's leg, which was found necessary to be amputated in the hospital. The careless perpetrator of the deed made his escape. Up to the present time, nothing further of him is known. North London News, 16th of March, 1861. Henry Dutfield, aged 36, carman, was unloading malt at the brewery at Tottenham Court Road when several sacks suddenly became detached from the chains in the course of being hoisted into the brewery from the wagon and fell upon him, crushing him in so frightful manner as to break most of his ribs. He was removed to the Middlesex Hospital where he expired in great suffering. A verdict of accidental death was recorded. Tamworth Herald, 14th of April 1877. A tall chimney stack which was being erected at Muir's Brewery fell shortly before noon whilst a number of men were at work upon it. The injured men were dug out as speedily as possible and taken to the hospital. Wells Journal, 8th of October 1915. Beer fumes. Robert Dickinson, aged 51, a brewer's tonsman, was suffocated by carbonic acid gas at the bottom of the vat at Mills Brewery. For the last fortnight, he had complained of pains in the head, which he attributed to fumes in the vats. On Tuesday, he entered an empty vat to remove the plug. Suddenly, he began to shiver and sank on his knees. Another workman entered the vat, but could not move Dickinson, who weighed 18 stone. He himself was affected by the fumes and was ordered out. When Dickinson was got out with ropes, he was dead. In 1922, the Horseshoe Brewery was demolished. And replaced by the Dominion Theatre. Many pubs are historic buildings. Full of beery myths, legends and strange macabre stories. The White Hart in Canterbury dates from Victorian times. Reputedly built on the site of St Mary Castro Church, demolished in 1486. The church mortuary now serves as the pub's cellar. Which still has the body chute used to slide the coffins down to the church crypt. Which is haunted by the spirit of a small boy who was crushed to death by corpses during the English Civil War. The Hatchet Inn in Bristol has a spooky story. Its huge 18th-century door is rumoured to be made from layers of human skin. Now painted a dark black, the story is that the skin was taken from executed criminals. In 1956, an American tourist offered $15,000 to buy the door, but was declined. 
The hatchet opened for business in 1606. And one of its regulars was the notorious pirate Blackbeard. Rawtonstall in South Lancashire is home to a pub with no beer. Mr Fitzpatrick's is the last traditional temperance bar in the UK. A legacy of the 19th century teetotal movement, it serves pints of dandelion and burdock and sarsaparilla. The wellhouse in Exeter has a stone stairway leading down to its cellar. With an alcove containing remains of either a victim of the Black Death or the body of an Anglo-Saxon teenager or a strange skeleton with the bones of both a man and a woman. The Haunch of Venison pub in Salisbury is home to a mummified hand. The story goes that in 1820, a loud and flashy stranger turned up at the pub. Met with an icy reception from the locals, he tossed the pot boy a single gold coin and shouted, Ale for all. But when he kept winning a game of whist, the locals started to become suspicious. The town butcher lost so much money, he pulled out a cleaver and chopped the man's hand off. In 1911, the severed hand made a reappearance, discovered behind a bricked-up fireplace. The fingers were still holding the cards. After all, nobody would want to throw in a winning hand. The 20th of June, 1944, D-Day plus 14. As our troops gather for the big push in Normandy, the home front cheers our boys on. But some cheers are in short supply. Yes, there's a lack of beer at the bridgehead. A Tommy with the forces sent this message back to Blighty. All we got is cider, and it's pretty watery stuff. More watery than water. Every day we privates order a pint of mile, but a glass we sit down with contains nothing but that eternal cider. British soldiers stationed in France were desperate for supplies of beer. And when they did arrive, it was barely enough for one pint per man. So enterprising pilots in the RAF hatched a plan. Our thirsty boys in France are scanning the skies in anticipation of one special air delivery from our flying pubs. Expandable drop tanks are normally filled with air fuel carried by that siren of the sky, the Spitfire. But these are fueled with a very different octane. British ale supplied by that redoubtable Chichester brewer, Henty and Constable. These airborne versions of the brewer's drays are piloted across the channel to bring cheer to our boys in France. The beer suffers no ill effects from its unusual journey. On the contrary, it's kept cool in the sky and is more than welcome in the mess. Those pint pilots have our forces cheering. Whenever a replacement aircraft flew over to France, it carried a beer bomb. But flying to hastily built forward airstrips on newly liberated French soil was not without perils. There were German snipers within range. As one pilot recalled... As I rolled to the end of the runway, there was absolutely no one in sight. What do we do now, I wondered. We can't just sit here and wait for somebody to show up. Finally, I saw someone peering out at us from behind a tree, and I waved frantically to cut him out to the aircraft. Out bounds this army type, and he climbs onto the wing with a welcome. What the hell are you doing here? I gave him a short but nevertheless terse version of the story. Told him I heard the Nazis are fouling the water, 
thought cold beer would be appreciated. His response? Can you see that church steeple at the far end of the strip? Well, it's loaded with German snipers, and we've been all day trying to clear them out. So you better drop your tanks and bugger off before it's too late. In moments we were out of there, but such was the welcoming for the first Spitfire at our airstrip in Normandy. The heftier Hawker Typhoon could carry more beer than a Spitfire. In 1944, pilots from the RAF Typhoon's wing, based east of Bayeux, started beer runs to a brewery at Shoreham in Sussex, 110 miles away. According to the wing's commanding officer, the New Zealand-born group Captain Desmond Scott, There was one problem with transporting beer in jettison tanks. On the trip over to Normandy, it took on a rather metallic taste. But the flavour was overcome with chemical means and the boys made short work of it. Later loads were delicious, just like the corner pub at home. Unfortunately, United States Army Air Forces mistook the British Typhoon for German planes. As Captain Scott related... Our aerial brewer's dray was attacked by American thunderbolts twice in one day and was forced to jettison its beer tanks into the channel. And the Wings Typhoon beer flights came to a sudden halt. But Scott arranged for an old twin-engined Anson to fly in cases of Guinness. The troops mixed it with champagne to produce black velvet. It was hardly a Cockney's drink, but they appeared to like it. When news spread of efforts to fly booze bombs into Normandy, government bureaucracy swung into action. One of the pilots was visited by customs and excise, who warned him that if he carried on, he would need an export licence. But when the Air Ministry found out, they turned the beer runs into a publicity story. Sending out official press photos of pilots leaning on spitfires while they are fuelled up with beer. Wartime RAF pilots' love for beer may have found its way into the English language. A pilot crashing into the sea was described as having gone into the drink. Which may have given us the idiom, gone for a Burton. In reference to the Midlands town of Burton-upon-Trent, famous for its beer. Either way, beer played a big part in winning World War II. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written and produced by Mark Zakian and narrated with Richard Madden. Extra voices and song by Tony Lewis. The music was written by Jeremy Pattle. To listen to part one of our History of Beer podcast, visit www.storiesofbritain.com Subscribe and leave us a review. Good luck to the barley mow. Well, here's good luck to the gal and good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the gal and good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the gallon, half gallon, pint pot, half a pint gill, half a gill, water gill, nipping and a brown bowl. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow.